1: All right, appreciate you tuning in tonight. I want to update the NHL for you quickly here. First period, Wild leading the Devils 2 0, no score, Bruins and Predators. In the second period, Sharks and Islanders 1 1, Ottawa up 1 0 on the Hurricanes, even though the shots are 27 11, Carolina, Chicago up 2 1 on the Caps, Sabres leading the Panthers 4 3. It is 1 1 Blues and Lightning and 1 1 Avalanche and Canadians. Ben Sherat, his fifth of the season for Montreal. Thursday night, football tonight a uh, very appropriately named there is no score between the cowboys and the saints four minutes into the first quarter got uh, appreciate all the texts coming in about sports broadcasters who you would like to have describe your day or tell the story of your day Howard Cosell getting some mentions. Ed Whalen. (laughs) Jordy says, everything I did would be a -a ring-a-ding-dong dandy. That's a good idea, Jordy. That would really spice up the mundane parts of your day. Brent says he is uh, working overtime and listening to the show. Brent in Drayton Valley. And then he adds, technically out in between Lodgepole and Cynthia. He says, feel free to do a remote one night from one of my compressors. I'll supply the canned ham and the Ritz crackers. Now that, Brent, is an offer we can't refuse. All right. I've been uh, telling you about it for the last half hour. Here it is, part one of my uh, interview with legendary NHL play-by-play announcer working in the United States, but often heard in Canada, Mike Doc Emrick. Welcome to the show. How are you doing?
0: Excellent. <laughs> and it's great to talk to you and the folks in Edmonton and Alberta. The first time I ever met Grace Sutter was at the Northlands Coliseum. She came over to watch the Twins play when I was toddling around with the Philadelphia Flyers in the '80s. And I always enjoyed trips to Edmonton, even though sometimes I was chilly.
1: Yeah, <laughs> just sometimes. Yeah, we, we're we're used to that. Hey, I I want to I want to ask you about your trip to Edmonton, but I I have to admit I, I was a little maybe not nervous, but apprehensive, thinking, okay, do I just call you Doc? Should I call uh, you Mike? Like, <laughs> You know what I
0: mean? <laughs> no, my wife calls me Mike because she knew me before I had the doctorate. You call me whatever you want to. No, it, it's it's totally fine. So who
1: started calling you Doc? When did it actually stick?
0: Well, I, I finished the doctorate in 1976 while I was riding buses in the IHL with the Port Huron flags. And uh, then I moved on about a year later to the Flyers' top farm team in Portland, Maine. And the president of the team, Ed Anderson, uh, who still lives back in Maine now, um, uh, started doing that. And I guess it just caught on with other people then, too. But that uh, that's where it started. It's not a very creative nickname at all. Um, and the folks at Bowling Green just sort of look on mystified by it all and I, I, my one uh, advisor, one of my advisors in my doctoral dissertation said, you're not going to go teach somewhere. You're just going to be some hockey puck the rest of your life. And I, I guess I disappointed him. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> I, have you been in touch with him since? <laughs> no. His, his daughter went on to be a writer for Married with Children and, uh, and a producer of the show. So she had a pretty good successful career of her own. But no, I never did Never did hear back from him. <laughs> All right. Well, man,
1: we're, like we're a minute in, and we've already worked in an Al Bundy reference somehow, which is pretty cool. <laughs> so, okay, well, I want to ask you this. Look, obviously, I've heard you call games. I've read about you. I've heard other interviews that you've done. But I'm wondering if you can take me way back, a young Mike Emmerich, before you were... Doc, were you always a sports-oriented kid? And if so, what was your
0: sport of choice? It was baseball, uh, strictly that, uh, because in our rural part of Indiana, were it not for some wonderful Canadians named Ken Elliott and Colin Lister who brought hockey to Fort Wayne and brought players like John Ferguson and um, Con Madigan and others from Western Canada, because that's uh, that was the area that they tended to recruit from to bring players all the way from Western Canada into Fort Wayne. Uh, We would not have had a team in 1960 uh, when hockey started to get some exposure nationwide in the United States, not only because of the US Olympic gold medal team, um but also shortly thereafter CBS started to broadcast Saturday afternoon games and uh, so i could see those and and we had our team in Fort Wayne in the IHL in 1952 when they opened a place called the Coliseum that still has the Fort Wayne Comets team spelled with a k to this day and so as a result um uh, i got a chance to see my first live game in in uh, the winter in december of 1960 and like you and probably so many other people um, uh, I got hooked when I saw the first game and uh, then that was my passion before that was baseball but then it became hockey and I knew I wasn't going to be an athlete of any kind uh, growing up in rural Indiana so um, I turned to broadcasting and that was my ambition from the time I was nine.
1: Okay, well, that's interesting. You say baseball. Rural Indiana, I would have thought you would have had some who's-your-style basketball story about a, you know, your small-town school knocking off some bigger school in those state playoffs.
0: No, it happened all the time, and our, our town was 600. It was about the size of Legendary Hickory. Uh, we had a situation, in quotes, with the coach. The coach was fired. And the students in the upper six grades of our one building, and it was, it was one through 12, grades one through 12, and the students in the upper six grades walked out, and it made the Indianapolis news that night. And two days later, the coach was rehired, and this is in the middle of the year. And the fact that the coach and the trustee who fired him owned the only two restaurants in town, made the story just even juicier. But that was life in small town Indiana. The only, there were only 13 celebrities in town, but they were celebrities. And that was the coach and the 12 members of the varsity team. And we did have to play the county seat team a couple of times in showdowns in the sectional tournament, very much like Hickory did, but we didn't win them. Well, I hope those were two really good restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they specialized in burgers and fries at noon and scrambled eggs and bacon in the morning. It was rural Indiana. Yeah, I bet.
1: That, that sounds great. I'm sure they were incredible places. Thanks for sharing that. So do you remember the first time you did play-by-play for hockey?
0: Yes. It was uh, at the Toledo Sports Arena in Toledo, Ohio. Um, and it was a game between the uh, Toledo Blades and the Port Huron Flags in the IHL. And at that time, now I, I should discount that that would be taking aside the two years that I spent. I got to do the second period of the of the Bowling Green Games. So if I were to count that, it would be the second period of a game between Bowling Green and Ryerson College. Uh, in the fall of 1971, but if it was a pro game, uh, it would be that. And Bob McCammon, who later coached Philadelphia and coached Vancouver, was the coach of the Port Huron team. And uh, that night, uh, Port Huron won six to five on a third-period slap shot by a nearsighted winger named Dale Dolmage, who was um, who was Detroit property at the time. Um, uh, the, I don't, I can't remember the second game, but I sure remember the first.
1: See, I I love how you throw little details into your storytelling, because it makes me want to ask more questions. How nearsighted was he?
0: Well, he he had initials, but they were also part uh, of a profanity that I would not say on the air. He had initials that were created by his prior coach, Ted Garvin. Who actually got in? I believe eleven games in 1973 coaching the Red Wings before he was let go. Uh, but they were they were initials thrown in between his first and last name because he couldn't see very well, and uh, so uh, that that was uh, an interjection that Ted used to yell about how poorly he saw. Oh,
1: okay.
0: um, <laughs> so anyhow, that that uh, the the nickname left when ted did and bob never used it but um anyway that 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 it's easy to remember that he was nearsighted based on that
1: okay i gotcha doc emrick joining us tonight on inside sports so look you you're you eventually started doing nhl games and then national games and you know you're one of the highest profile people to call any sport in the united states but i'm wondering when You know, you're getting hired by the devils, or you first go to do NBC games. As a broadcaster myself, I find it interesting. Did you apply for those jobs? Did they still want a demo tape? Did somebody approach you and say, "We think you're you're pretty good. Come talk to us about the job"? Like, how did it go? Let's
0: see. In uh, 1973, when I got the first job in Port Huron, I applied in I think 1969, and uh, the uh, the owner of the station in Fort Huron kept that in his file for a long time until they had an opening. And then he called and had me come up and talk about it. And I thought he would interview me about my knowledge of hockey. And I sat in his office and he said, so how much is this going to cost me? And I thought, well, what, a, what kind of a question is that for a, a job interview? So I fumbled around, said 160 a week, and he slammed his hand on the table and said, that'll be fine. Well, gee. Well, anyway, uh, the second job was highly competitive because it was the Flyers farm team, triple A team in Portland, Maine. And the Flyers had just won two back to back championships. The last ones they won. Uh, And so they were creating their own farm team because they wanted to dictate who was going to get playing time rather than sharing. Um, uh uh arrangement in Springfield and so everybody knew that the Flyers had money they were going to do it the right way and there were 40 people that applied for the job and so you got 15 minutes of time with the Flyers president Gil Stein who later was the last president of the National Hockey League before Gary Bettman came in as commissioner and so I was the fortunate winner of that and so i got to um i got to do the main mariners for three years in the first two they won championships and the last year they lost out to uh, new brunswick hawks uh, a team that had daryl sutter bruce boudreau and ron wilson as players on it so we had a lot of fruit future coaches that knocked us out of the playoffs that year uh the flyers promoted from within And so I got my first job in the NHL in Philadelphia in 1980 with the Flyers, I did not have to submit any kind of tape for that. Uh, I did not have to submit a tape uh, really thereafter because the Devils were in 83 and the Flyers bounced me back in 88 to them and then back to the Devils for 18 consecutive years. And because of the proximity to New York, Uh, I didn't have to submit any kind of demo to any of the networks that eventually hired me because you were viewed in the New York area on a regular basis if you were covering the devils. And so that wasn't necessary. So I just got lucky.
1: Well, you're modest. I'm sure there was more than just luck involved. But thanks for sharing that story. Okay, Doc, so you mentioned coming to Edmonton. You would have been coming to, in the 1980s, Northland's Coliseum, as it was called at the time. Do you have a particular Oilers game or moment that really stands out for you? Oh, yes.
0: Uh, Weather-wise, Memorial Day weekend in the United States uh, is the latter part of May in 1987. They still had... Stanley Cup luncheons it was a tradition that they honored uh, going into the Stanley Cup final they would have a luncheon the day before game one of the final and that was in Edmonton it was in a hotel banquet hall that overlooked that valley uh, that also has the baseball park that you can see Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the name of the hotel. But anyway, I'll never forget that here it is in late May, and it is snowing to beat the band. <laughs> and cars are skidding down the hill trying to get into this hotel driveway. <laughs> it is, uh, in a, of all things, and it's May. But I was witnessing, out of the 47 years that I covered hockey, the best team I ever saw. the 87 oilers the second best team was the 92 unified team that had 17 out of the 23 rostered players that eventually came to the nhl casper and kovalev you know that that whole gang because communism had fallen Viktor tikanoff was coaching them uh and they were called the unified team because they could no longer be called the ussr and the third best although this is always a, a debatable point was in my mind because Ken Holland, now your general manager there, uh, was no longer, as he said, uh, when the uh, when the long one-year-long lockout was settled, we are no longer creating all-star teams here in Detroit at the end of each season at the trade deadline. We are now under a salary cap. And uh, he created a marvelous team in 08 that went to six games and won in Pittsburgh and almost won uh, back-to-back titles uh, with Mike Babcock in uh, 08 and 09. And I think that 08 team was one of the best because Zetterberg and and Lidstrom and Rafalski and all those guys were in their prime and they were, uh, Datsuk. they were playing just wonderfully. And so that was, uh, you can always debate the third best, but in my mind, there's no debating the, the two best that I ever saw.
1: That is Doc Emrick, part one. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what a storyteller. So as I mentioned earlier, we did that this afternoon, talked for a little over half an hour. So part two of the interview will be on the face-off show tomorrow, which starts at 6 o'clock. I'm not sure exactly when uh, Doc is going to slide in. But uh, and if you, that last question, he didn't act exactly answer because I asked him about a memorable Oilers game. And he kind of described the the, the snowing in may and i assume he was either at the hotel McDonald or the Sutton place to have the view of the river valley and the hill with cars sliding on it so he he will get into tomorrow an actual specific oilers game that he finds very memorable i i doubt it's one of the ones you expect because it doesn't it is not a playoff game so i'll just leave it at that and uh wow what an honor to talk to doc and more with him tomorrow on the face-off show It's also an honor to get messages from those of you with incredible senses of humor. And Craig has texted me one of the best text messages I have ever received. It's about Jack Michaels, and you'll hear it when we get back. to be very clean. You come in here to this particular corner, you're braking quite hard into third gear. You can go through here in third gear if everything's right. Now in full tanks, you might go through in second, but again, you've got to be clean because if you get it on the wrong line on this first bend here, you're going to lose this whole series. That's Jackie Stewart describing how to avoid a photo radar ticket in Edmonton. Speaking of have, having someone describe your day-to-day life. That was the drive to work this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh, uh, all right. So, yes, the if you're just joining us, the, the premise of our off-topic topic tonight is we, we just had Doc, Doc Emmerich on the show. Brian Williams re- is retiring, and uh, Bob Irving, the voice of the Bombers, is getting set to call his last CFL game. On the weekend. So I, I said, What sports broadcaster would you like to have describe your day? Highlights, do some play-by-play, or whatever. So I've got a lot of cool suggestions, but Craig Craig aced the assignment because he went that extra level. He didn't just give me a name, he gave me a very specific scenario. So Craig said <laughs> I I might not be able to read this without losing it, Kellen. Craig says, I would like to hear Jack Michaels describe a romantic interlude. And down the stretch we go. (laughs) And then Craig writes it. Craig writes it another one. Jack Michaels described. And I love how he calls it a romantic interlude. How to keep it PG for inside sports. Mm -hmm. And then Craig says, Jack Michaels again. And the pleasure was all mine. There we go, Craig. You have uh, aced the assignment. You get. We're gonna send Craig two canned hams. Ooh, a double. That's how good that. That's how good that was. Seven eight zero four nine six zero zero six three. Oh, we're having a good time tonight, and we got another broadcasting legend coming up. Like I said, Bob Irving from CGOB in Winnipeg.
0: Six thirty, Chad. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins, weekdays at six on Six Thirty, Chad.